Welcome to Third Fridays, the monthly legal talk show from Lois LLC featuring attorney Christian Cisan. This is the original forum in which real attorneys discuss workers' compensation issues, share their opinions, and engage in colorful conversations. This show showcases diverse perspectives of attorneys handling workers' comp cases, including case law trends, practical litigation strategies, and hot topics. Here's your host, Christian Cisan. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the October 2022 edition of the Third Fridays podcast. My name is Christian Cisan, back with you guys again. And uh, we had a very eventful uh, show last month. We had uh, two guests, Addison O'Donnell and Christopher Major, talking about uh, an appellate division case that came out earlier this year that involved a lot of risk transfer issues and a claimant who wanted his workers' compensation claim to be disallowed. Uh, so if anybody wants to uh, tune in to uh, that episode, it's uh, definitely still available. It's actually one of our uh, highest listened to episodes of the year. Um, but we have something different for you today. Uh, today we're going to talk about the new onboard and prior authorization request system that debuted in New York Workers' Compensation earlier this year. I believe it started in May uh, of this year, and we've now had about five months to see how it's being uh, worked through the process uh, at the court level and with employers that we represent. So uh, for that purpose, I have uh, invited uh, Noah Pollock, Senior Associate from Lois Law Firm, uh, to the show. Welcome, uh, Noah. Thank you, Christian. Very glad to be here. Yeah, you know, Noah, I guess before we get into that, like, you know, when I was announcing last month's podcast, like, you know, I saw like your reaction to this fact pattern where, you know, a claimant wants his claim disallowed. So just to briefly go into it, and we'll spend the entire podcast talking about last month's podcast, but this person uh, was shot uh, as a resident physician in a hospital when a former doctor at that hospital who resigned because he was accused of sexual harassment put his lab coat on, walked through security in the hospital, and shot up the place. And the uh, claimant was, you know, this this resident physician who wanted his workers' compensation claim disallowed so he could get rid of the exclusivity provision and get more money in civil court. So it was this weird case where the hospital's carrier was going into court. They filed an RFA-2 to get a hearing just to establish the claim to have the exclusivity provision in place and break the claimant's uh, ability to sue the employer for, you know, eight, nine figures in civil court. Isn't that crazy? It's, it's interesting. I mean, honestly, just thinking about it from a comp perspective, um, from a carrier perspective, there would be a good argument just to disallow the claim. And the claimant could argue to disallow the claim. It's not being work-related within the scope of the employment. I mean, doctor going in there, an ex-doctor who's not even working there, going in there, shooting up the place. I mean, it's, it's, it's tragic. It's crazy. I mean, I, I hope that the, the only injuries suffered are, are, you know, active comp claims, not death claims. But um, it doesn't seem to be within the course and scope of employment. I can see a carrier rushing to accept that claim uh, to ensure uh, that uh, massive exposure lawsuits are not filed. Right, right. So the, the, the board panel agreed with the carrier that they had the right to accept the claim. And the carrier, uh, the claimant appealed to the appellate division and the appellate division overturned it. Uh, so uh-huh. they, they, they disallowed it because they believed the claimant's position that 
uh, it wasn't within the course and scope of employment. But, you know, reasonable minds can can disagree that a disgraced former employee who has resigned for sexual harassment allegations coming back wearing the same lab coat. I don't know. Maybe that's work related. But you'd have this weird situation where a claimant is saying that this is not connected to work. Uh, Loads of fun. Loads of fun. And I'm putting that in quotes because I I feel like only people like you and me would think that's fun. Um, But let's get let's get on to uh, uh, today's topic. You know, I I, uh, to, to all our listeners, I, I invited Noah mostly because uh, he's been a, a very good resource for people in our firm as it relates to you know medicals being the high cost driver of workers' compensation claim. You know, Noah's been a very big proponent of articulating how indemnity, even though it can be very expensive, is sometimes so uh, for uh, indemnity is so tragically forgotten when it comes to high cost drivers of medical. So like, no, like even before onboard started, what, what led you to, to feel like that was the message you want to get, wanted to get across to, to people in our firm? Well, it's generally because when you think about workers' compensation defense, what we do at hearings, actions that, that attorneys take on behalf of employers and carriers, we, we really do on the service just think about uh, cutting awards, reducing awards, suspension, fraud, which only which only impacts awards. So you really just think about it in terms of, okay, how can I reduce the indemnity exposure? I don't want the claimant getting paid. Because also the average person thinks about workers' compensation. They think, okay, someone's not working. They're getting paid. They're getting lost wage indemnity benefits. Um, and so it is forgotten. The element of workers' comp, which is actually more than half the exposure when it comes down to it, is the medical uh, component. And it's important to think about that because it really will set you apart as, uh, as an attorney defending an employer carrier if you can, if you can uh, cut into the medical exposure and the medical cost because they are more expensive. I mean, because workers' compensation, these claims are open. Claimants are working and not getting paid, but they're getting medical treatment. Or if you just think about the cost of surgeries, uh, fusion surgery, knee replacements, twenty-five, fifty, a hundred thousand dollars, which easily eclipse, you know, schedule loss of use awards. And beyond that, I think it's very important to think about workers' compensation claims. I mean, I do because of uh, the work I do in the con- uh, on the construction practice group. That a lot of workers' compensation claims will. Uh, have a general liability uh, action attached to the accident. I mean, you're actually talking about, it's interesting because you were talking about that claim last week for uh, uh, a doctor shooting, an ex-doctor shooting up the workplace and the exclusivity clause that the carrier wanted it established as a comp claim because then they wouldn't be allowed to sue, uh, the claimant wouldn't be allowed to sue the employer in court. But a lot of construction claims because um, they involve general contractors or owners. Uh, they're not actually suing the employers. They're suing the general contractor or the project manager or operator. And so they have it, but the money is coming out of basically the same entity. Uh, and so because of that, I know if you can, you can do a verdict searches for how much certain surgeries are worth. And I can tell you that a lumbar or cervical fusion surgery uh, verdict value is over a million dollars. Wow. And you're going to be very hard pressed to find any compensation claim where over a million dollars, even near a million dollars, is paid out in indemnity. So, 
again, it's about about being the best attorney you can be, and it sets you apart if you're able to uh, cut into the medical exposure. Yeah, even that's, even per a lot of permanent total disability cases don't reach a million dollars in indemnity, and that's that's the worst thing we can get. Uh, so it's a great point. I, I think, especially with your experience in the construction industry, knowing that if you can get a cervical fusion that lifts the value of your general liability claim, it also helps to get it established on the compensation claim because it's a quicker route. It's a quicker route to get somebody held responsible and then you you connect the accents. I was also thinking too about how, you know, indemnity is very cut and dry. Like you're out of work or I guess it's supposed to, right? You're out of work and whether your 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 wage loss is related to that accident, but medical, you can go to the doctor as much as you want whether or not you're out of work. And then within those medical reports, you know, our clients face this all the time, right? Where there's just so many diagnosis codes that have a separate fee schedule bill, and then that gets racked up. And you're right, like most workers' compensation attorneys don't think about that medical cost because they believe it's just being handled by the adjusters in-house. That's true, 100%. They think about it more as a clerical or administrative type issue, dealing with the medical bills, denying medical bills, and really there's substantive issues. And I think it, you really, it, it, a lot more lawyering gets, is involved in, in the medical because you're evaluating medical evidence, you're, you're doing the depositions, and you're really getting into more nitty-gritty medical issues. It's difficult as a lawyer to get into it with a doctor on substantive medical issues, but um, it really is a test of... Uh, uh, your abilities, uh, if you can, uh, when you're attacking the medical components of claims. So, so we, when we look at onboard, right before onboard started, there was just the regular variance process and authorization request process. You you, you led a training uh, for our firm last year around this time last year, and uh, you talked about the medical treatment guidelines and the variance process being an advantage for employers. Right, we can use the guidelines almost to deny variance requests by proving, for instance, that uh, the provider didn't meet the burden of proof, right? We don't need an IME all the time to uh, deny a surgery. Um, has that has that thought process changed with respect to onboard? Do you still feel, you know, I guess, well, before maybe before we get into that, what, what is onboard and the prior authorization request process that started in May compared to what it was in April and before that with the variance process? Right, so essentially what the onboarding and the prior authorization process is, it's moving um, uh, medical treatment requests from paper to electronic. Basically all MG2s and C4Offs primarily are being replaced by the onboarding PAR system. So whereas before uh, healthcare providers would have to email or fax, yes, fax, for treatment, certain requests for treatment. Now everything is done through uh, the board's onboard online system uh, instantaneously. So you have the healthcare providers involved and you have the, the payers, the insurers involved. So it basically takes everything from paper to electronic. I did, I did see that the, the board said one of the benefits, the great benefits of the onboarding system is they're saving 850,000 pieces of paper. So oh, they said, okay. Yeah, so, you know, I guess the... Uh... The, the, the environment, the, the onboarding. Yeah, but that's what it's moving from paper to online. All of the uh, almost all of the treatment requests. So you know, they, they, there are uh, this. There, there is this movement, right? You're, you're right. I mean, it's it is making it more uh, electronic friendly. And what, what have you seen? I guess uh, 
to be the the carrier or employer response to the deployment of this system, at least in the early going. Like five months ago, you know, this happens. Like, you know, did employers and carriers uh, love that we were going to save 850,000 sheets of paper or, or uh, were, were, were they uh, upset about this development? Uh, well, I think there's, there's really two parts of that. One is the administrative change um, and the second is substantively. So, so first, whenever you're changing a system that has been so entrenched, um, I mean, the MG2, the variants and the C4 auth request, the paper, email, fax system was in place for many, many years. And so the carriers, um, you know, had their routine. Uh, they set up their protocol, the logistics for handling that, and they will deal with them accordingly. Now, the onboarding system really upended that. You had an entrenched system that was offended and they're putting something new in. So anytime you're putting something new in, especially in this tremendous scope, you're dealing with, with just a tremendous amount of of uh, requests coming in every day and it's instantaneous. Um, whenever you're dealing with that kind of change, there's gonna be growing pains. So I think just the change itself, and we're only five months into the latest, the, the last phase three rollout of the system, um, there's, there, there's a lot of issues with carriers setting up the, um, the system, their, their, their protocol for handling uh, onboarding. I mean, they had to go through a very quick training. They had to set up their, um, they're basically they have a, a separate. Uh, most carriers will have a separate team or department that's dealing with it. So just the changes alone, structural changes alone, will lead to you know things falling through the cracks and not being able to handle um, the the new load that's coming in. So that's number one, and we're gonna see. I think that may ease as as uh, the months go on and and everyone becomes more comfortable with with the system. But that's the that's the number one issue right now. Uh, substantively, I did feel that the, the paper uh, and email, the slower system of the prior MG2 and C4Auth requests, I did think that benefited carriers, if only because um, it allowed more opportunity for, I think it made litigation easier right. for carriers uh, when they would just simply deny an MG2 or a C4Auth and would immediately go to a hearing. And then you could litigate uh, accordingly. You know, you want to take depositions of doctors. It allowed that. It allowed us to do more. With the with this system, because the way it's set up, it's more difficult to get that type of uh, litigation uh, when just, just looking. I, I would advise everybody to go through the board's resources uh, and training. Uh, they have, it's, it's not, it's not, it doesn't take that much time you go through it all to familiarize yourself with it. But uh, the way the system is set up and, and how reviews are, are generated automatically, what the carriers need to do, and then how um, reviews are then sent to a medical director's office for, for final resolution, uh, things of that sort. It takes some of the litigation opportunities away from carriers and from and from attorneys. I think that's substantively the most difficult aspect of it. But, um, but overall, I think as, as everyone becomes more comfortable with it, it, it shouldn't be um, that different from from how we were uh, addressing uh, treatment requests before. Um, that w that we will be able to to, to contest the, the way we would uh, uh, normally uh, contest treatment. That, that's a great point, actually. Just even without considering the substantive, um, I guess. Uh, development of how we respond to a new system. The fact that it's a new system itself, 
right? You mentioned that it's going to cause some things to fall in the cracks just because people have to change, you know, how they react, when they react, what systems they have to put in place. Uh, I didn't actually think of that, right? Like the, just the idea that we're changing something is going to make it harder for the stakeholders involved. Great point. And then, and then when you go to, you know, um, the, the quickness of the, uh, resolutions, right? Uh, I, I don't know if uh, you you experience this in your cases, but I, what I've seen sometimes in, in my group is that uh, you have a couple of different problems. One, uh, you have a, uh, a a team being set up, like you mentioned, right? Because the adjusters yeah. are going to be able to handle all the, the PARs exactly. immediately, right? So they have this set up team. It might be a utilization review. It might be, uh, you know, an, another person within the uh, the carrier or the uh, the TPA's company who just addresses this and then when they address you know a request for surgery they don't realize for example that authorizing that surgery even if it may be mes- medically necessary might be waiving your defense of causal relationship as an advanced yeah. payment of compensation so i've seen that type of issue i've also seen um, even a more benign uh, sounding issue where you know uh, we have clients, for example, that say, no, this this person does need surgery and it is our responsibility. We want to pay for it. But because the onboard system maybe like initially went through a level one denial because maybe there was something lost in translation, the provider, instead of knowing what to do and making that level two request, they just assume it was denied or maybe they file an MG2 because they think it onboard you know messed up. And now the whole process keeps moving along without resolution of that surgery. Do you, do you see any of those two issues happen in your cases? Um, well, I will say <clears throat> what I, the, the worst problems I find, and it probably has to do with the fact that, like you were saying, like I was saying before, the carriers, the payers have set up a totally different apparatus or somewhat separate apparatus than the day-to-day uh, handling of the claims by the adjusters. So the ones handling the PAR reviews in onboarding are operate somewhat independently of the adjusters, even though level one reviews can be done by anybody. And I would strongly advocate that adjusters are the absolutely, ones doing it. Absolutely, absolutely. Both contact with them. Often that is not the case. And because of the the, the uh, divide between who is looking at these requests and the adjusters and the ones handling the claims day to day, some of the defenses can be lost, like you were saying cause a relationship or they don't know what's going on in the case. And so sometimes they'll just look at the, the, uh, the request and the, the treating providers reports and take them at face value and say, Oh, okay. Yeah. The guidelines are met. Uh, the, the, the site is established. So yeah, let's, uh, let's authorize. And that just doesn't happen with level one. That will happen with level two reviews as well. And I, I found, I, I find often you need to be so, so on top of your claims and making sure the adjusters letting everyone know, by the way, if this treatment request comes in, we have this defense, this defense, this defense. It can't just be about medical necessity. I think causal relationship uh, defenses, when sites are established, I mean, this is the, probably the biggest issue I have with medical treatment on comp claims generally is that once a site is established, it's treated as if uh, all treatment for that site is going to be related to the claim no matter what. It's kind of like you stub your toe. Uh, five years ago, and now you want, uh, you know, I don't know, some some toe surgery, a fusion, whatever. <laughs> Somebody like you twist your ankle five years later, you want ankle fusion. Uh, or, you know, you, you picked something up and you, you, you threw your back out, and now 10 years later, and you had a comp claim, and now 10 years later, you want fusion surgery, and it's related to that. 
And so those causal relationship defenses, there's really no place for that kind of defense. There's a place for the, the compensability threshold. There's no causal relationship for the site of injury to begin with. But the causal relationship where the site is established, we're saying, well, the, the knee might be established, but the knee replacement surgery is not related. There's really no place for that in the uh, level one and level two responses, uh, unless you really you tell the doctor responding level two, they're really aware of it. Um, so now, actually, uh, very important to, to let carriers know and for attorneys to know, the RFA-2, there's a new RFA-2 that was instituted with the uh, phase into the onboarding system. And there, there's, a, there's actually an item in an RFA-2 where a carrier can contest future medical treatment on causal relationship grounds and provide a basis for that. So if that's filed, if you have that in a file, that's something important. That's a tool to use um, to defend against these claims where there's no dispute. You have many claims. I'm sure you have many claims. I have many claims. But there's no dispute that a claimant has bone-on-bone -bone osteoarthritis in the knees. No dispute that a knee replacement is medically necessary. The dispute comes down to whether it's related to that accident you had where you twisted your knee five years ago. And in that case, you file, once you have an inkling, any sort of uh, hint that there's going to be a knee replacement requested or some sort of surgery or some extensive treatment, make sure the carrier knows there's this option of filing the RFA-2. And that, that, that is protective. I actually think that the board um, put that in there because they acknowledged the deficiencies in dealing with the causal relationship question on sites that are already established. For You're saying that the play. board is giving us a chance here? That's that's I, that's interesting. They put that in there. They put that in there. And, and beyond that, it's important to know also that the new RFA for carriers, um, you can contest uh, an MDO level three. So level three right, reviews right. are all done by the board, the medical director's office. The, the carriers are doing level ones. Anybody can do those. And then a denial or denial in part or granting in part will automatically take it to a level two, which is has to be done by a doctor for the carrier. And I will say that increases costs for the carrier because you have all these automatic doctor reviews, whereas before you could have had a registered nurse, nurse practitioner, some other provider. Now you have to pay a doctor for many, many, many of these level two reviews that are automatically uh, that are mandated and they're generated automatically. But level three reviews. Uh, for special services, which were the C4R special, uh, the most expensive types of treatment, you know, fusion surgeries, uh, TK, uh, TKRs, things like that, uh, as well as variance requests, um, those can you can actually still file an RFA two to, to request review and, and and get a hearing. So it's not like uh, you know once you have that level three uh, resolves in favor of the uh, provider, that that's the end of the deal. They still allow that that litigation, but it's about familiarizing yourself with it because I haven't seen. Carriers are really are completely blind. I haven't seen any case that I've had that carriers, uh, at least uh, on their own uh, terms, uh, before we give them any advice, are filing those. Yeah, those I, I, I think you said three really interesting things there, uh, and there's so much yeah. content. Okay. There's so much content in that last little soliloquy that you had that I was actively trying to remember all of them so I could uh, flesh them out. The first thing you said was totally on point, right? Level one reviews by the adjuster because it actually envelops the problem that we were just talking about where if a treatment request comes in and we're not on top of it because there's so many of them and so many cases on the, on the docket, well, if the adjuster knows what the, the legal position is of that particular body part or that particular treatment or that doctor, right, the history with that doctor, them having the ability to be the level one reviewer 
will cut out the risk that it's being authorized for something and waiving defenses. And so that, that's a, that's a great recommendation. I, I totally agree with that. The second thing you mentioned was the, um, having a system where, uh, Different people within the system believe that once you have the established body part, all of the treatment to that body part forever is linked. And I was th- I always think back to when I first started doing workers' compensation and you, you litigate these variance denials and you'd have actual judges and claimants' attorneys go, the knee's established, there's a tear, I get this surgery. That's what the guideline says. And it's actually not true. Like, So you're just basically assuming that everybody that has a tear – Got it just because of a timeline like cor- uh, correlation, right? So everybody with a pre-existing tear, you're you're actually convincing them and encouraging them to file workers' compensation claims because this tear is going to be taken care of. And I do think that it is a risk with the PAR system, the onboard system, because if they're only determining medical necessity, right? Yeah. And they don't have the information on whether or not it was pre-existing. They don't have a prior claims report or a medical canvas, or they don't know what we know about the case. They're going to see that, right? They're going to see knee established, tear, arthroscopy, right? Or, or meniscectomy. And that, that's a huge, huge problem that we face. I think um, the third thing you mentioned, I might have already forgotten it because I, I already went into the tangent of the first two. The third thing you mentioned was... The RFA, the RFA. yes, perfect. Against future treatment, yes. Yes, okay, now now our listeners know that we definitely didn't workshop this before recording, which is also good for <laughs> uh, organic conversation. Um, so yes, the RFA2 option, because what you have actually is more cases where if the treatment's denied for an unestablished body part, that usually comes in the form of a CA.1B, right? They file the form. And then whether that uh, gets entertained by proposed decision or an actual hearing, it just becomes part of the case, right? We're, we're not thinking about that. But this new RFA2 for a level three MDO uh, issue, or even before it gets there, to file a request and say, wait, I want to litigate this to offset the risk that I have in the future of this punishing me. I think, you know, as I talk about it, maybe maybe you are right. Maybe the board did contemplate something that would be beneficial for us. I guess I'm just so jaded that I believe that the board is always doing something to hurt employers. Well, you know, if you really think about it, it's kind of like this. Due process is important, even in comp. If you look at at a lot of... (laughs) Due process is important, even in comp. (laughs) Say comp is warp speed. It's high volume. It's tons of claims. It's warp speed. Things go, I mean, especially compared to, to, uh, you know, third party actions, lawsuits, it's just warp speed. And sometimes it's difficult to give the parties due process to litigate all the issues properly. But if you look at board panel decisions, how they handle, I would say the most common issue is if you request cross-examination of a doctor on an issue and it's not and it's not granted at, by the judge, the board panel will almost almost 100% of the time say, you have a due process, you, you request cross-examination, you're allowed to, you're given that, that, that right, that, that, that opportunity. And I, I think that was a concession here because of the causal relationship issue, not being allowed to really develop that, not having that due process. I'll put it, you know, give it that grandiose, do put it under a grandiose due process uh, headline. I think that really was a, a concession to that because imagine a scenario where the carrier is like banging the table saying, look, the medical necessity, yes, it's there, but we want to fight causal relationship. You got to let us fight causal relationship. There's no box to check. Right, level, right, one, right. Level two review saying that the site's established, but this is cause related. It's kind of like let us fight it out, and so I think that is uh, a kind of kind of a due process uh, 
uh, a due process. Okay, yeah. Yeah, no, that's definitely a quotable. Due process is important even in comp. Well, so we have this onboard system. We talked about the advantages, disadvantages. Any specific things that you would recommend that would make it better for all stakeholders, like even even our adversaries? <laughs> well, well, I would say this. Right now, if you wanted to change, and this is something that's come up in several several of my cases, uh, if, uh, if a carrier uh, files a, a grants, a, a PAR request, they authorize it, level one, level two, they cannot go back and change that authorization. They cannot. Now, the only change that can be made is when it was denied. If it was denied, oh, right, right. Part, so partially denied, then they can go back and change it to granting it. But if it was granted and then new information comes up or they find out, you know, it was a mistake, there was an error, usually because of this, you were fighting on certain right. other issues, like why are you authorizing it? They can't do it. And so what comes up in those cases is we need – and the thing is once they, once they authorize it, they can't like reopen that PAR request. They're going through that onboarding system. It's like you're given the PAR request from the, the provider and then you address it and then it's done. It's closed and you can't change uh, authorization to a denial. And so what you have to do then is file correspondence or an RFA2, something of that nature with the board saying, by the way, this was authorized, but it was a mistake, and it's really without prejudice still litigating this issue or that issue or causal relationship or something like that. So I don't know why the board didn't allow that. See, with MG2s and see for us, as long as you were still within the time frame uh, of, of uh, responding um, and you had mistakenly filed a MG2G or a Z4LG, if you then shortly thereafter filed a denial saying, by the way, it was a mistake, this supersedes the prior filing, that, that was usually good enough. But in this case, there's no option. So I wish the board would allow that where, um, you know, within whatever it is, within a few days, it's still open so that they have that, that option. That's um, actually that's actually the reason why I think this is this has been bad for employers because you you have a system where you're you're really trying to get more treatment authorized. I think that the system was created in part because they didn't want to have lit, litigation over medical treatment clogging the system. And so they had yeah. this crazy timeline where you have to respond between in, in four calendar days for, for all these different treatment requests. And obviously, like you said, it's very hard to keep on top of it when you have many cases on, on your desk or docket. And I think the process was designed to do that. It was designed to get more treatment authorized. And, and, and I feel like your uh, recommendation there to change that process and allow a grant to become a, a denial, just like a denial is allowed to become a grant, like is part of the reason why it has been so harmful to employers. But uh, hey, your your mouth to God's ears, right? Or or to to Clarissa Rodriguez, uh, chair of the Workers' Compensation Board, right? Uh, yes, let's let's make uh, mistaken authorizations be supplemented by correct denials. Uh, of course, I think every uh, employer in, the, in our great state of New York would sign on for that. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I agree. I, I think that, yeah, I think that they do want to help claimants because they, they're fed up with claimants getting treatment denied and not being able to get treatment that they so richly deserve. But it really can't come at the uh, such expense. Everything is tilted towards the claimants, certainly in workers' comp in New York, but that really shouldn't be uh, at the expense of the carrier's right to properly defend, um, properly defend the file. And I, I think they did also want to do away with when he had all these MG2s and C4Rs being faxed or emailed, there were procedural defenses involved where, oh, the MG2 wasn't served properly or wasn't served on all parties the same day. 
uh, in, the, in the proper manner. Um, it wasn't sent to the right email that was designated by the board. The PAR system, the way it's designed, it does away with all of the procedural defects of the Z4OS and MG2. So it immediately moves past that obstacle for claimants uh, because it's instantaneously proper. The service, the electronic service is, is proper and it's, and it's uh, instantaneous and then the carrier immediately has to address all the issues. So uh, it does favor, that's another reason it favors the claimants and the providers because it takes away certain procedural defenses. And we know that, you know, delaying, sometimes delaying certain treatment, uh, allowing other defenses to um, come to fruition that we have, uh, uh, preventing the claimant from getting certain benefits will often uh, uh, limit exposure and then say maybe it triggers the claimant going back to work or um, things that are much, much more beneficial to the carrier. So, yeah, I think part of the system also is... Well, yeah, you, you had a, a very cogent recommendation for the system itself. My, my recommended change uh, was more selfish. I, I just feel like there's too many button clicks uh, to get to a PAR document before I figure out what's going on. But, you know, they say a new version of eCase is coming down the pike pretty soon. Uh, maybe maybe my solution is going to be fixed because I hate that I'm clicking, you know, six or seven times just to figure out that it's a surgery and not a physical therapy round that's being requested. But I think that's a great uh, that's a great point to end. Uh, to, you know, Noah, thanks for for joining me today. Uh, you know, for everybody that's listening, uh, and especially uh, the the client that that uh, I'll remain uh, I'll keep uh, unnamed that we met with a week ago that that specifically said that they listen uh, to the Third Fridays podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, it keeps us uh, really engaged with providing this kind of material. Uh, to all of our clients and prospects uh, still going strong and, and much thanks uh, or, or credit is due to the talent and, and, and bright minds of, of attorneys like Noah Pollock here in our office. So thanks, Noah, for, for coming on today. Uh, thank you very much for having me, Christian. I really enjoyed it. All right. So for all our listeners, this is Christian Cison reminding you to defend from day one.